0: to ask you, what is an appropriate response when someone does something that's just amazing for you, just awesome, something you can't do for yourself? Thank you, a hug. Thank you. A hug. Okay, let's, let, me, let me give you some examples of what someone might do for you, and then let's talk about what the response is. So we're at thank you and a hug right now. Um, imagine that you get a message out of the blue that someone has paid off your mortgage. Or that if you live in a rental, that the owner has decided to just give you ownership of the rental. Imagine that you are dying in need of an organ transplant, and a total stranger gifts you an organ. Imagine that you have been saving and saving and trying to buy your first car, and then you find someone is selling one online, and you go to buy it, and they say, Hey, I just want to give it to you. What's your level of gratitude in those kind of situations? What's the appropriate response to that kind of thing? How do you feel? How do you respond? There's, if we're honest, probably in a lot of those situations, there's, like, there, there's no way to express that level of gratitude. There's, there's no way to respond to something that is of that magnitude. Well, today we're in John chapter 12, and we're looking at the response of some people to Jesus after he had raised one of them from the dead. This family, Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha, were very close to Jesus. Um, A couple weeks back, Lyndon covered um, in his sermon uh, the death and the resurrection of Lazarus and how how Jesus did that. But in today, we, we have the account where Jesus is coming back to town. And this is their chance to show their appreciation. Imagine for these two ladies, the emotional roller coaster of being an intense mourning because your brother has died, to he is alive again. Jesus has given him back to me. Imagine for Lazarus, you were sick, you died, and then you heard this voice saying, Lazarus, come forth, and you're back alive again. Imagine what that was like. And so today we get to look at how they respond to Jesus and how they respond to Jesus' love in light of what he did for them. So I'm starting in verse 1 of John chapter 12. It says this. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed his, the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, we're going to look at some positive responses to Jesus, digging into what those three just did. But we're also going to see some negative responses to Jesus' love as well. And that's what we see next. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples... Well, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And so we see these different responses to the love of Christ. Jesus showed his immense love for, for Lazarus and Mary and Martha in doing this thing for them and bringing Lazarus back to life. And so how do they respond? Well, when he comes to, that, comes to town, what does Martha do? Martha serves. Martha serves. Now, many of us who are familiar with with uh, the stories of Mary and Martha probably know a different story about Mary and Martha where It's a different time that Jesus came to their house, and Martha gets bent out of shape because she's doing all the work, and Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet. And in that story, Jesus rebukes her, and a lot of times I think we give Martha a bad rap here um, or misunderstand what's going on because uh, we take that passage to mean that the problem was that Martha was serving and doing stuff instead of sitting and listening to Jesus. But we see here in this story, I think this story gives some clarification to that story, in that when Jesus comes this time, what does Martha do? She's still serving. Does Jesus tell her, like, Martha, have you not learned yet? Like, get in here and sit down. No, that's not what he says. Because I think at this point, there's been a major change in Martha's heart. Martha is now serving out of her love for Jesus, not out of an obligation that this has to be done, and why isn't my sister helping me get it done? And so Martha, I think, demonstrates for us here an appropriate response to Jesus' love, which is serving. She serves him. She serves all those who are there. Um, and, and this is something that I think we can, we can learn from. Martha is a natural servant, is what we see from her in Scripture. And some of us are just gifted that way as well. And so I want to encourage you in your response to the love of Jesus in your life. Serving is a very valid and very appropriate response. To be the one that wants to subdue the hands and the feet, to put stuff into action, to help get things done for the sake of Christ, for the sake of His kingdom, for the sake of the gospel going forth. And so the first thing we see is a positive response to Jesus' love. is Martha's example of serving. The next one we see is Lazarus himself. What is Lazarus doing? He's reclining at the table with Jesus. He's saying, I just got to hang out with my buddy. This is the voice that called me from the grave, and I get to sit here and listen to him more. And Lazarus is just sitting there soaking it in, spending time with Jesus. And this is a very, very appropriate response to Jesus' love. To sit there and just spend time with him, to soak it in. And you say, well, that was nice for Lazarus. I mean, Jesus was sitting here. He was sitting here. Like, it's easy to spend time with somebody when they're there. How do we do that today? We do that today by the fact that Jesus sent His Spirit to be with us. How do we listen to Him? How do we hear His voice? Well, we do that through His Word. And we we let His Word speak into our lives. We let that, that permeate. Uh, so we, we give him the opportunity to speak because it's his word that saves us. It's his word that brings salvation into our lives. And so it's his, his word that brings that back to us as well, that brings us that encouragement that is life-giving. But also, just as, as Lazarus in this situation could have sat there and had a conversation with him, we equally can today through our prayers, where we can talk to him as a friend we can talk to him as someone who identifies with everything that we go through. In Hebrews, it tells us that we, we have a high priest. The high priest is the one that's, that's interceding with, between us and God. And Jesus is that high priest, and he is there as our go-between between us and God. And he is one, because of his life, because of taking on human flesh, he understands everything that we go through. And we have him right there. And all we have to do is take time. To talk with him, to spend that time with Jesus. I didn't ask for permission to share this, so I hope I'm okay. And if I get in trouble, I get in trouble. Um, but Brittany got some very encouraging news this week from one of the ladies that's doing the women's Bible study, um, who said, You know, honestly, before this, I didn't really open my Bible. Now, I've got three different translations open every day and I'm spending hours in it and it is really impacting me and really helping me. And it's it's so easy. It's it's there. All we have to do is open it. We have it here. Most of us have it here. We can I mean, your access to the word of God is more available today than at any other point in history. And yet so often we just set it aside and then we say, "Well, why why aren't I hearing from God?" Where is he? And he's right there, or you, do you take the time to spend with him that you should? Then it comes to verse 3, and we get to Mary. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, for us, this this might seem kind of weird, you know? If you came over to my house, and all of a sudden I started dumping nard on your feet, I don't know how long you're going to stay. You're probably going to be like, wackos, I'm getting out of here. But Jesus obviously did not have that response. Yeah, I don't have the hair to wipe it with anyway, right? <laughs> so, Jesus didn't have that response. And why? Because she was giving him something that was beautiful. He knew what was coming. He knew that the cross lay before him. He knew that his death was imminent. We're, we're getting within a week of his death. That's coming soon. And he knew that was coming. He's like, hey, she's already preparing this body, this flesh, for burial. She's doing a beautiful thing, and she's giving in an amazing way to do that. Now, I don't know how many of you have bought a pound of pure nard that smells like perfume lately. Um, But in this day, this was a very exorbitant gift. Based on uh, what uh, Judas says here, the value of it and other accounts where it's recorded as well, this would have been the equivalent of a year's wages. So in in BC, um, based on uh, our current minimum wage, what would this be worth today? At least 40 grand. Who, Who has. Who has 40 grand laying around? You say, hey, I'm just going to dump it on Jesus' feet. That's what I want to do right now. And so we have to kind of check ourselves like, whoa, look what Mary did. This was of great, great value. And she gave it to Jesus. And she did a beautiful thing with it. And it wasn't a gift that it was like, Oh yeah, we had this leftover back in the back You know, like we were using it for something else But I guess I'll pull it out and kind of pour it on like, No, this was of great value And when it comes to our, our responding to Jesus' love We do need to give to Him And we need to give in a way that is exorbitant We need to be willing to give Him our best To give Him uh, what, for others, it makes no sense that you would give and that's the model that is set forward for us in Scripture. But the next thing she does is she gives sacrificially. You see, we, we see her gift, and, and we, we see the way that she bestows it upon him. And also, being separate from this culture, we can miss the great humility that she shows in this situation. Because in this culture, it was completely unacceptable for a woman to even let her hair down in front of a man who was not her husband. Completely unacceptable. Culturally. What does Mary do? She's here in this whole group in this room and she's letting her hair down and she is wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And she's saying, I don't care what other people say about me. I don't care what the opinion of others are. This man, this man gave me my brother back. He showed me great love. He did great things for me. And my response is, I love him in return. And this is something I'm going to do for him, no matter what others think. I'm going to do it humbly, not out of uh, anything for myself, but for him. And that's the last thing. We give to him exorbitantly. We give to him sacrificially. And we give to him humbly. It's not to to seek praise for ourselves. Mary's not going around saying, hey, look what I've done. And yet she's recorded for all of history for what she did. For all of eternity, she's recorded in the word of God, which will not pass away for being the one who anointed Jesus' body and prepared him for death and burial. And what an honor to her. But we can see in her actions and in her humility that she's not doing it for her. She's doing it out of her love for him. And those are appropriate responses to Jesus' love for us. And if we had to use one word to sum up all of this, what what would that word be? I propose that that word would be worship. The right response to Jesus' love is worship. You know, so often when we use that word today, we talk about what we just did, right? Like the, the music, the singing, um, you know, the times where, where maybe we feel it a little bit more because the emotions are going with, the, with everything, and, and we use that to describe worship, which it is worship. But I want to propose to you as well that serving with the right heart, worship. Spending time with Jesus with the right heart, worship giving with the right heart, worship. And our worship is about a lot more than just singing or just hearing a sermon. Our worship is about our whole lives being lived out in response to His love for us. So those are the positive responses. So now the negative. What can we learn from the negative in here. What do we see? We see good old Judas. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And so we see Judas here, and what do we learn from him? One, we see negative responses to Jesus' love. The first one is negativity. He's negative. He's, he's. Oh, well, why is she doing that, right? And before we give Judas too hard, much of a hard time, I mean... How many of you would have a problem if we came to you and said, Hey, our elder board's been talking. We think the best idea is for us to, to buy something that's worth 40 grand and pour it out. <laughs> right? Yeah? Now, now we're like, oh yeah, Judas it." Okay, yeah. Um, but yet, that was what Jesus wanted, and that's what was supposed to happen in that time. And it doesn't make sense all the time. So sometimes... Earthly wisdom has to be trumped by godly initiative. But Judas here is negative. Everybody else is seeing the beauty and smelling the beauty of what this woman is doing for Jesus. And Judas is in this negative place of saying, What a waste. He's judgmental. We see this in the negative responses. Jesus loves all those as well. Those who are judgmental, he's judging this woman, he's judging Mary and saying, Like, this should have been sold and given to the poor. Which is the next thing is this holier-than-thou spirituality. Like, what he says sounds good, right? I mean, who, who would object? 40, forty grand poured out or forty grand given to the poor? What, what sounds better? What sounds better to give to the poor? But what he was really doing was operating under the greed of his own heart. And John, who was in the group, he was in the inner circle, he was in those board meetings. He knew how the funds ended up being worked out in the end once they went back and they were doing an audit on all of it. What really happened? Oh, Judas was skimming off the top. What was Judas's real motive in here? He wanted that money that sold put in the purse that he managed so that he could take what he wanted of it for his own personal gain. And he was putting himself over Jesus. Mary is giving sacrificially, humbly. Judas is operating out of selfishness and self-gratitude. And that's where we see the major difference. And then the final, final thing we see, it's number five for this group, the negative responses, is the desire to put an end to the spread of Jesus' love. I don't see this from Judas, but I see this at the end of the passage where it talks about the religious leaders. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. (laughs) We were kind of laughing about it in the office this week because imagine me and Lazarus here. Hey, the chief priest want to kill you. Well, been there, done that. You know, like... I already tried that one out, Um, but their desire, because they don't, they're rejecting the love of Jesus, rejecting his goodness, rejecting what he has done, their desire is to put a stop to it, to put a stop to it, to to stop the spread of Jesus' love. And I want to tell you today, we're in the same situation Scripture tells us that for those of us who are followers of Jesus, who know the power of his resurrection, those of us who placed our faith in the cross and what he did for us in the gospel and the fact that he raised from the dead, then we're part of his kingdom. It's the language that the New Testament uses. And there is an opposing kingdom that wants nothing more than to destroy, to seek, kill, and destroy. And it uses lies, and it uses everything it can to destroy and take away from what Christ is doing and from people getting to experience the love of Jesus. What does that kingdom sound like? This kingdom has, has a lot of negativity, judgmentalism, throws out spiritual language to sound better than anybody else, and ultimately it is selfish, and it's desiring to put an end to Jesus' love being spread, it's the same thing we 're up against today. It's the same thing we have to check our hearts against to make sure we 're not falling into today. And so what is Jesus' response to all of this? Here's Jesus' response. He responds, "Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. He's saying what she's doing is essential for what's coming. She is playing an important part in God's plan and what he has before me. And he says this, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And so when Jesus is responding, he's saying she's doing something for me. This is of value. Now I want to clarify like, Throughout church history, there have been those who have taken this response of Jesus and taken it to mean that Jesus was saying, hey, um, once you don't have me in person anymore, which we don't today, once you don't have me in person anymore, then your sole focus is to be on the poor. Now, hear me say this. Caring for the poor is very, very important and very essential for the follower of Christ and his church and part of his kingdom. Okay? I'm not, not negating that. What I am saying is, if that is your only focus, then I think you're missing what Jesus was saying here. What he's saying here is what's most important is the gospel that's about to happen. What's most important is the death, burial, and resurrection of me for the sake of mankind, for the forgiveness of sins, so that that can go forth into the nations, so that all nations— can come to know me as their Lord and Savior, so that all nations can hear the good news. What's one component of that? Is my people taking care of the poor. That's one component of spreading the gospel, but that's not the sole focus. And so when Christianity gets shifted into just social action of caring for the poor, it takes us off of mission and takes us away from what God has ultimately called us to do and what Jesus gave us in the Great Commission— Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you through it all. That's the marching orders. That's what we're given to do, to go forward, to reach people for Him, to spread His love. And we still have these different responses today. My kids reminded me this week um, about the the story of the 10 lepers from Luke chapter 17. I encourage you to go read it on your own. I was going to read it to you, but we're going to, for sake of time, move on past it. But in the 10 lepers, Jesus heals 10, and only one comes back to give him thanks. And we equally can fall into that. We can be like Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and be the one that comes back, thanking him and praising him and giving glory to God for the things he's done in our lives. Or we can be the nine who are like, "Woohoo! I'm healed. Party time! Where are we going now?" Got the good thing from God, moving on in my life. Let's be the one that returns. Let's be like Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and their examples for us. You've heard us mention. Um, this two weeks ago, we had our leadership retreat, and uh, a question came up in that retreat um, uh, as far as for the future of our church. You know, ten years down the road, what does it look like? And the question is, what's the goal? What is the goal? Is the goal to have a large church? Is the goal to have a medium-sized church? Is the goal to have a church that's planted a bunch of other churches out of it? What What is the goal? And the more I've thought about that question since then, I've, I think I, I'm to a place where I want to change the question, to answer the question. Because so I think the question that we need to be asking as a church is, what's it going to take to accomplish what Jesus wants to do in our community through us? I just got um, some statistics uh, about our area, um, I want to ask, how many of you guys drive more than 15 minutes to come to church that are here today? Okay. All right. Um, how many of you drive under 15 minutes to get here? Okay. Good, good majority of us. How many people do you think currently live within a 15-minute drive of this location? any guesses? 40,000? 40,000? Anybody else? Okay, you like me are wrong. (laughs) It is 75 to 80,000 people because we're between the data right now that live within a 15-minute drive of this location, which I think is a reasonable parameter for considering who maybe God wants to use us to reach. So, now let me ask you another question. I don't have as concrete data on this, so I've got more speculation on this. Of that seventy-five to 80,000, how many do you think on a Sunday morning, or if it's another time of the week, gather with the evangelical church to worship the Lord? Where would your number be at? I'm hearing everything from one percent to twelve percent. I think twelve is generous for sure. My guess, from knowing other pastors in town and when we talk about things and kind of know where other churches are, my guess is that it, on a, a good Sunday, maybe Easter, that you combine all of our attendances and we're maybe between two and three thousand. So, two to three thousand out of seventy-five to eighty thousand. I think we got some work to do. I think, I think that the gospel needs to go forward. And what's it going to take to reach those people, to, to let them know of the goodness of Jesus and the, His love that is there for them? I think the first thing it's going to take is maybe not worrying about what the 10-year goal for our church is, but maybe just worrying about today, right now sent if we could put that slide back up with the, the three positive responses. I think it's going to take a group of people who are willing to respond to Jesus' love by serving, by spending time with Jesus, and by giving to Him exorbitantly, sacrificially, and humbly. I think that's what it's going to take to start with. Because as we do that... Then the gospel goes forward. The kingdom grows. More come to know him as their Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for sending Jesus Christ to be our Savior. We thank you for the price that he paid on the cross, that he died so that we could be forgiven. The perfect and holy sacrifice on our behalf, in our place. Lord, we do pray for our community. We pray for those who are around us. Lord, we want to see so many more come to know you. Lord, help us not just get focused in on ourselves and be like Judas and just looking out for what's in it for us. But Lord, help us to be like Mary and Martha and Lazarus who respond to your love in ways that give you praise and glory and honor. You are great. You are good. And we just want to praise you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.